Welcome back, dear listener. This is Charlotte Kratom, Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. You are listening to our podcast series titled Science in the Bible. This is the second part of our 11-part series where Michael will be addressing God the Creator. You can find the video version, PowerPoint worksheet, and other resources at our website, evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org. You can also directly support this broadcast and help us keep it free by donating at evidenceforfaith.org give. And with that, here's Michael Lane and God the Creator. Hello again, it's Michael Lane at Evidence for Faith. I am so glad that you are here with me. I have a fantastic lesson that we're gonna do today. This is gonna be so exciting. You're gonna actually see a chemical experiment too. We're gonna have some fun here as we go through talking about uh, God is the creator. Now, if you were at our last lesson, the introduction to this whole new unit that we're doing called uh, Science in the Bible, we talked in the last one as an introduction um, just basically about what this series was going to be um, focusing on. Now, we will be getting into what the Bible has to say about like things like astronomy, geology, meteorology, um, human biology, all these different ologies and subject areas like that. But on this first lesson, as we get into here, I want to introduce you to someone. It's the Creator God. That's what we're going to get into because I believe that God is the Creator. Now, I used to be a Darwinian evolutionist. I used to teach Darwinian evolution. I was a very strong advocate for Darwinian evolution. I used to debate people who were against Darwinian evolution. I don't anymore. I have changed sides. Why? Because when I worked in fisheries genetics and was working in research I, and working in the field trying to show how possibly fish evolved, I started seeing all sorts of problems with this theory. And there was just too many problems with it. There were too many conditions that just didn't seem to make sense. And so I started examining the Bible more carefully and studying the Bible and studying science at the same time as I was working in this and in talking with many uh, different scientists and, and including some uh, at least one Nobel laureate, I came back to the conclusion that there is a creator God that did things and I want to introduce you to him today. Um, but before we get into that, before the formal introduction, I want to I want to talk to you just briefly about somebody else. He's an atheist. Now he's now dead and gone. Um, his name is Francis Crick. You might remember hearing about him, very famous scientist, Nobel Prize laureate. Um, he, along with James Watson and Maurice Wilkins, and who should have been also a recipient of the Nobel Prize, Rosalind Franklin, since they sort of uh, purloined her photographs to, to get their prize but didn't include her. I always include her in, in this. But um, Francis Crick was a very, very strong atheist. Uh, and in his books, he, this comes across, and he was very, very vocal about this frequently. But in his latter days, he wrote a book called Life Itself, Its Origin and Nature. And in this book, he actually says something. This is later in his life, but he, he says something that is just remarkable uh, for an atheist. Because you see, an atheist is somebody who, who says, there is no doubt in my mind, there is no God. You see, an agnostic is different. An agnostic is a person who says, I'm not sure there is a God. There might be, there might not be. But an atheist, no. 
definitive. There is no God. So Francis Crick was an atheist. At least that's what he always claimed to be. But this is what he wrote in his book. And I'm going to quote it. Quote, an honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense, the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going, unquote. Isn't that an amazing statement for a very, very famous Nobel laureate scientist who worked in the field of origin of life that he says that it appears at this time to be like a miracle? There are so many conditions that would have to have been met to get life going? A miracle? What's a miracle? Something that cannot be explained by science. Thus, science cannot offer a good explanation for this. That's what he's saying. And he, he's getting it right because I don't believe I agree that this is a miracle. It's, it's a work of, of a supreme being, an intelligent designer, if you will, who put this together. Um, many of us Christians, we call him the creator God. And I want to just show you a few things here now as I introduce you to this creator. So what we're going to cover here is how did life and matter form on this unique planet? Well, I believe the master designer, God, is the one who did it. And in his word, in his 66 love letters that he wrote to us, what we commonly call the Bible, uh, I actually love to call them the 66 love letters because that's what they are. He pours out uh, in these, these letters to us, um, his heart, his emotions, um, tells us how to, to live a, a, a successful and abundant life and, and so many things that, oh, this is why this is one of the pillars of this ministry of evidence for faith. but. In this, he tells us, he gives us some information. Now, he doesn't explain all the, the processes of how he did miracles. I mean, we'd never be able to comprehend that anyway. But he does give us some clues. Now, let me just take you through some verses, both in the Old Covenant or Old Testament, if you prefer, and the New Covenant, the New Testament. First of all, it starts off Genesis 1.1. Most people can probably quote this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who created it? God. God did it right there. He created it out of nothing. And there was nothing before, and then he makes it. There was a starting point uh, for all of the universe, and he's the one who started it. Uh, he didn't form it out of something already that was there and just change it over. He created it. Uh, let's, and people sometimes have problems with the Genesis 1 account, so let's just move on. Let's go to Exodus 20, verse 11, because we'll come back to that in some other lesson about the days of creation. But in this one, Exodus 20, 11, it's amazing because here we have the, the uh, creation account again. No one ever seems to quote this one and how that this, you know, they always jump on Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2, there's the problem, there's the problem. They, they, they never bring up Exodus 20 because it, look what it says in verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. You got the whole creation story right here again. In what? Six days. Isn't that amazing? And he did what? He didn't reform things. 
He made it. That's what he's doing. Well, let's look at Exodus 31, verse 17. What do we see? In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth. Isn't it amazing? We keep seeing the same thing as we saw in Genesis. Yet people always attack Genesis. They don't seem to attack the other books of the Bible as much as they do Genesis. Yet we see the same thing taking place here in six days. And I do believe these are 24-hour days. We'll have a whole lesson, I'm sure, in the future having to do as what I did in studying the ancient Hebrew verbs and the way that um, the sentence structures are put together and statistical analyses and stuff and show you that I believe these are indeed 24-hour days. But let's move on. Um, one of my favorite passages. Oh my gosh, I love this passage. As a biologist, this is my, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. And if you ever get into life sciences, you, you, you'll, you'll see why, particularly because I like the ocean and stuff. But get this. It's Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. <gasps> I love this. Get what is being said. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Oh, that is a biologist or a scientist's dream right there. I mean, that is a fantastic passage. And he's the creator. Let's go to Psalm, Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9. It says there, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. For he spoke and it came to be. You notice when it says this, he spoke and it came to be. There's nothing there and then it came. So it's not a process of reforming things in the universe. All of a sudden, there's, uh, there's something where there was nothing before. Uh, Psalm 104, verses 24 and 25. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. Oh my gosh, this is another marine biology passage I just absolutely love. And here again, we see that God is making things. You notice it's not letting things evolve and change into others. No, 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 no. He's making things. Um, and that's what he's doing. He's creating things. Let's go to the book of Isaiah. Chapter 37, verse 16, it reads, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Is it getting any plainer than that? By the way, you know one thing that I often get asked by children, and even teens and sometimes college students will ask me, all those Greek gods and Roman gods, were they really gods, the Egyptian gods, and then the Christian god is just... The, the, like the one that's superior to the, all, or to, to the rest? Is there other gods, in other words? Right here is your answer to that. You are the God. It doesn't say a God. You are the God. You alone. There's one God. Mm -hmm. oh, let's keep in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens. Here again, we see creating. Uh, Isaiah 45, uh, verse 12, it says, I made, this is God speaking, I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. Here again, we're seeing God is creator. He's the creator God. 
Isaiah 45, verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it, He established it, and He did not create it empty, He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. This passage really defeats what's called theistic evolution, which at one time I was. I believe that God used Darwinian evolution to create the world. This verse here says, no, he didn't, because he is creating it. It started empty, and he is making the different parts of it. He's inhabiting the different kinds and stuff, what he's talking about here. Uh, we've been in the Old Testament long enough. Let's go to the New Testament, New Covenant. Mark 10, verse 6, it says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Who did it? God. From when? At the beginning at creation. It wasn't something that evolved. He's talking about a specific moment in time that he makes them. Or let's take a look, same book, Mark chapter 13, verse 19. From the beginning of the creation that God created until now. Here again, we see the beginning, the creation, God creating. Let's go to John chapter 1, the first three verses. Very fa famous passage. Most Christians probably can quote this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Sort of like a tongue twister there. But the word, later on you go down a few verses, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is who's being described here. And do you notice something? Jesus Christ is creator God. Isn't that cool? Colossians 1.16 Again, talking about Jesus Christ, who is God. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Wow! Did you catch what's in this verse? It says that he created things that were visible and invisible. And it's talking about matter and stuff, invisible. Do you see? He's basically talking about molecules and atoms here. Isn't that amazing? That he's talking down to that level, things that are invisible. Even the Greeks thought and knew that there were particles that could not be seen. This is what this is talking about. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says, And he spoke to us, that's the Father, spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now get this part. Through whom he also created the world. These last three verses have told us that Jesus Christ is the creator God. Isn't that awesome? He created the world. So we see these things. All through Scripture, God is telling us, and there's more we could go, uh, go through, but oh my gosh, there's so much here telling us God is the creator. But is there any evidence that God actually created the universe and all life forms? Is there any evidence for this? I believe there is. And that's what we're going to get into here for just briefly as our introduction to the science and Bible uh, series that we're doing. First of all, I want to examine something. As we're talking about living things, whether, whether it be bacteria, uh, fungis, protozoa, uh, plants, um, animals and stuff, and even the most complicated creature on the planet, the human female, and ladies, that's a compliment. Um, all things are, um, are working and, and using little things called enzymes. They're little pieces of protein that are made. And we're going to be talking about how these things are made. Now, as a Darwinian evolutionist, I used to believe and I used to teach, erroneously, that um, everything happened by 
random chance, enzymes and, and everything that form, because enzymes speed up reactions and you can't have living things without enzymes. Um, and so we have to have that. And how did enzymes form? How did these pieces of molecules and stuff, how do molecules fit together and make shapes and stuff? I used to teach it was by random chance. If you're looking at this right now, you're probably thinking that does not look like that was done randomly. It, it wasn't. It took me a while to sit there and twirl that around. Um, luckily, I went to college and learned how to do that. But anyway, first of all, the probability of random. I want to talk about that. Just random. The chances of an enzyme, like this little molecule here, uh, of being formed by random chance. See, the first living creature um, that ever formed, if you believe in Darwinian evolution, you're thinking probably some type of bacterial or prokaryote type cell. Now, if we're having something like this, that cell, in order to live, has to have a whole lot of enzymes, um, hundreds, in order to live. Now, they have to be different types and uh, different shapes and things, but the thing is, to form these things by random chance, what's the odds of just in a soup, putting a bunch of chemicals and it forms these certain type of molecules? Well. As I said, enzymes are just chemicals, most of them are made of proteins, that speed up reactions. Um, that's what they do. For instance, um, this, you're probably familiar with this product here. This is um, hydrogen peroxide, as you can see, hydrogen peroxide. And I'm gonna take some, now, just to let you know what hydrogen peroxide is. Um, this is just a 3%, this is not very strong, but what it is, it's, its formula is H2O2. Now, H2O is water. In other words, it's got another oxygen molecule attached to it. So it's H2 to hydrogen, O2 to oxygen. But So it's water with an attached, and it's not attached very strongly. It's got an attachment of a, an extra oxygen. Now, you notice they always come in brown or dark bottles all the time. Hydrogen peroxide comes in a dark bottle. Why? because that bond between the oxygen and the water is very, very weak. Very little energy is needed to break it off. Light will do it. Light energy, photons can actually break the bond. It's very simple. And if I was to take this, which I shall, I'm gonna open this up and just pour this in a beaker here, just a little bit, as you can see, just a little hydrogen peroxide inside there. It looks just like water. It doesn't taste good. Um, it's, it's terrible tasting. Um, it's 3%. This is not going to hurt. You could brush your teeth with this. Um, but this actually is water with an extra hydrogen, or I'm sorry, extra oxygen molecule. Now, if I just let this sit here with these bright lights in this studio, it will eventually give off, slowly give off the oxygen molecule. It's actually happening right now, but it's happening at an extremely slow rate. Well, we should be able to speed that up. I'm taking a little potato. Isn't that the cutest little potato? That is just the cutest. I almost feel like carving a little face on there and calling him Peter or something. But anyway, I'm gonna take a piece of potato here. Um, this is raw potato. I've not cooked it or anything. And as I'm doing this, I'm just gonna cut up um, a little piece of this raw potato because it's got living cells in it. And some of the cells that you find in this are called, um, uh, they have a, uh, an enzyme in there called catalase. Now, I put this in here and I swirl this around and what's gonna start happening, you can, I'll see if I can move this aside, you can start to see what's going on. I'm gonna chop some more up it, of it in here. I hope you can see this. And what we're gonna do is just chop up a lot more 
and drop this down inside of here. And if you can make it out, there are bubbles coming off the potato. Maybe if I put it onto the dark surface, you can see there's little bubbles coming off of this. That is oxygen molecules, oxygen atoms coming off. The hydrogen peroxide is being broken up by an enzyme called catalase. Catalase, what it's doing is it comes to that hydrogen peroxide and just breaks off, very quickly breaks off the hydrogen uh, from uh, the water from the um, the water molecule from that extra oxygen. So the oxygen is coming up. If you really want to have some fun at home, you can do the same experiment and get a really quick, a much faster reaction by taking a piece of raw liver, chicken liver, beef liver, pork liver, whatever. Just cut up a size of a, pour some in a glass, cut up a piece of raw liver, drop it in there. You will see it happen real fast. It's really interesting. But now you can see the foaming all occurring here. These are oxygen molecules. So what's going on? The enzyme called catalase, which is inside the cells of the potato, they are coming along and actually we'll just pour some more in there. I mean, it doesn't hurt. Um, and these little catalase molecules are coming in here. And what they're doing is they go up to the hydrogen peroxide and they're like yeah, and chopping off a piece of the, uh, of the oxygen. The extra oxygen breaks off very easily because it's weakly bonded and it's giving off oxygen. So we have oxygen coming up out of here now at a quicker rate than just from sunlight. Enzymes speed up reactions. That's their whole point. They are very specific. An enzyme is very, very specific. It's like fitting a key into a lock. You can't use your house key often to start your car. Um, you can't use a locker key to get into your house necessarily. Um, keys are very specific. Enzymes are very specific. And what they do, an enzyme comes along and joins on. It has the help of a water molecule and it will break chemicals apart. In the illustration I'm using uh, on uh, this presentation, I have a picture of a, um, uh, of a sucrose or table sugar molecule. It's, you can see there's two shapes. Um, one is a glucose molecule and the other one is a fructose. And when the enzyme, that's the larger thing, um, big thing called sucrase, because it works on sucrose, enzymes usually end in the suffix ASE. And when they come together with an oxygen molecule, a reaction occurs almost instantly, and you see this release, and it breaks the bonds between, in this case, sucrose uh, is broken up between uh, its glucose and fructose, uh, two sugars. So we went from being a two sugar, sugar, uh, sugar which is like a disaccharide, into uh, two individual monosaccharides. And now the enzyme's ready to go again. Enzymes are reusable. They're so cool. And that's what enzyme are. Now, if you change the shape of the enzyme, it no longer can function. The shape has to be perfect. Uh, the, um, uh, the whole enzyme has to be absolutely perfect. They're very susceptible to heat and acids and bases. Uh, you got to be careful working with enzymes, but they speed up reactions remarkably. And, and as I said before, enzymes are made of proteins. And so they're made up of little tiny pieces that are all put together and proteins and in living things there's, uh, are made up of amino acids. There's 20 what we call essential amino acids and each amino acid is uh, very important. Uh, some people take these as supplements and stuff and boy, this guy's really being stubborn right now. Um, but the enzymes are made up of these things and here I'm just taking one amino acid off. 
like so. Here's one amino acid, and now this enzyme is no longer going to function correctly because the shape has been changed. It's missing this amino acid. It will not react the same way. So it's got to be it's got to be the right sequence of these amino acids, all in, a, in line. They've got to be in the exact order. And then, once they're in the right order, they have to be put into the right shape. And the cell has the ability to do this, that it can take the shape and make it into the correct shape to do its job. And you can see how proteins get altered and, and, um, by things like heat. If you ever take an egg, drop egg white right out of the egg into a hot skillet. Before it hits the hot skillet, it's sort of a clear color. As soon as it hits the hot skillet, what happens is the protein denatures, is what we call a fancy term for it. What that means is it changes the shape. And now it can no longer function, but it's still protein. So raw egg or cooked egg whites, either one, you still get the protein. It's just we change the shape of it. You're still going to have all the exact amino acids all made up in a line, but it's all different now. That can't work the way it was supposed to now, and I'm not going to try and put that back together. But now here, we, let's get back to our lesson. Now that you know what an enzyme is, enzymes are necessary for living things. This, this little batch here showing you what we had, just going back and showing again, look at the amount of foam occurring on this, and you can see that there is a tremendous amount of foam on that. And that is showing these are all oxygen bubbles is what's come up. Enzymes are so important for living things. The potato had to have it in order to function and live. Now, let's get back to our topic of how this formed. Mathematicians have studied random chance at trying to make an enzyme, one simple enzyme needed by a living thing and to get its shape right and everything, not just the sequence, but to get its shape all perfectly. And they have come up with an, uh, the odds of this happening by random chance as being the odds of this happening by random chance, one enzyme, one simple, simple little enzyme at being one to 10 to the 125th power. That's a 10 with 125 zeros behind it. I don't even know what you call a number like that. That's a honking big number. And that's what it is to make one by random chance. Now. If a single bacterial cell, a simple little, what we often call a simple organism, nothing simple about these things at all, but if a single bacterial cell needs, and they have found out that uh, microbiologists know that it takes about, on the average, around 2,000 different enzymes to just barely keep a bacterial cell alive. Well, if the odds of making one by random chance is one to 10 to the 20, 125th power, the odds to make 2,000 different ones it's astronomical. It's crazy. The odds of this happening by random chance are so out there, I, I can't begin to think of the number on this. Well, some people have. In a book called Evolution from Space, Dr. Fred Hoyle and Dr. Chandra, this is a great name, Wickram Ashinghi, <laughs> I probably butchered that really good, state in this book that the odds of two important enzymes being formed by random chance processes in a single bacterial cell uh, of a special type of enzyme is about 1 to 10 to the 20 times 2,000 power. Or in other words, we can just simplify this. The odds of making two enzymes necessary for living things to keep that cell alive is about the odds of being 1 to 10 to 40,000. That's a that's a one with 40,000 zeros behind it. I don't even know what you call that kind of a number. I don't know if that's a Google or what. I don't know what that is. That's honking big. That's all I know. Um, now, this is so cool. 
This is so important. In the 1990s, mathematicians and physicists determined something in studying odds of chance, random chance, and the odds of things happening. And they discovered something, and it's used frequently in science now, that the odds of anything happening when it goes beyond 10 to the 50th power is what is called scientifically impossible. 10 to the 50th power. That's a one with 50 zeros. Still, that's a honking big number. In other words, you could flip a coin um, and have it come up heads um, 10 to the 40th power. It's, it's highly unlikely, but it is scientifically possible. Once you get to 10 to 50th, they consider that scientifically impossible. What was the odds of getting an enzyme formed? Even a simple one? One to 10 to the 125th, a very simple, easy enzyme? That's scientifically impossible. Did you catch that? It's scientifically impossible. But, and I do believe that this is part of why Crick wrote that in his book, that life seems to be a miracle. It goes against scientific probability, the odds of this all happening. What he has been teaching and speaking on and writing about for years, he's starting to catch, there's no way possible this can happen. It's beyond science. And that's why he uses the word miracle. It is a miracle. This leads us to another thing talking about enzymes. Now let's talk about uh, DNA, where enzymes are coded and made from. DNA. DNA is one of the most amazing molecules. Do you know that your DNA in your body, if we take one of your cells, a cheek cell or whatever, or a blood cell, if we take the DNA out of there, it's containing so much information. It's about 1.5 gigabytes of information in your DNA. That just to let you know, that's more information than you can store on two CDs. And that records basically everything, not just your height, your eye color, um, you know, making your different organs of your body, uh, all this. There, there's a lot of factors that DNA does. Matter of fact, we still don't understand everything that DNA does. We're still learning fascinating things about it. We had no idea it even existed yet. Well, there was a, a professor, his name is Ray Roth. He's a former professor of molecular biology at the University of Connecticut. And he's an expert, spent his life studying DNA. And he wrote a book called The Piling of Coincidence. And um, in this, he's writing about the origin, the possibility of this molecule forming by random chance. And he says this, it appears it is reasonable at present to suggest the possibility of a creator. Now, why would he say that? Because it goes against all scientific probability to form DNA out of nothing. It just can't happen. There has to be something he, he finally yields and says, there's gotta be some type of a creator to put this thing together. Why are we saying this? Well, let's talk about Bill Gates. Bill Gates, what kind of scientist is Bill Gates? Well, he knows a lot about computers. And this founder of Microsoft, he said something concerning DNA that was just fascinating as he was studying some of this and computer programming and computer languages. He says, quote, human DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any we've ever created, unquote. Now, this is interesting because you understand what he's saying? A computer program, what's a computer program? That's a language. Do you understand? DNA is a language. Languages always come from intelligence. Languages don't happen by random chance. They're, they form an intelligence. Uh, let's try this. Do you remember back when you were in elementary school? and you had a buddy or a friend on the other side of the classroom and the teachers told you you can't talk and so what you did maybe is you took out a pen and wrote maybe you worked this out with them ahead of class that you guys had a special code and you wrote a little special code here secret code folded up the paper handed to the next person the next person gets it they don't have the code 
don't know what this is. It just says pass on to what's his name. So they pass it down. Next person picks it up, can't read it. And it keeps going. Finally, it gets to like Charlie sitting on the other end. Charlie opens it up. He sees all this really weird stuff, but he knows the code and he can translate it and figure out what it's being said. DNA is like that. It's a language. Now, in writing the note, when you did this in elementary school, did not, didn't you use your intelligence, your brain in figuring this out? Didn't you make little symbols and things like this? You see, it's a language. A language, the note, the code and stuff is a language. DNA is a language. Dr. Stephen Meyer, Discovery Institute says, quote, when we find information in a DNA molecule encoded in digital form, the most logical conclusion is that the information had an intelligent source, unquote. That was in a book called Does God Exist? Stephen Meyer's got it. He understands this is a language. If you have a language, that means there's intelligence behind it. That's what's so fascinating about DNA. Since DNA is a digital language, a digital language is always the product of an intelligence. It, it seems then, it seems logical that there has to be an intelligent designer. There's got to be some type of superior intelligence to put this thing together. Um, let me give you an example here of something that's really interesting. Um, as we study DNA and in school and biology and stuff, you learn that it goes through a process called replication where it copies itself. That's an amazing process. By the way, it requires an awful lot of enzymes to do this. Um, then it, it, it's going to go through a, um, like transcription to make like an enzyme or make a protein. It goes through transcription, goes through a process called translation, and then it makes this thing in what's called protein synthesis. Some of you might be dying right now when you hear that. To me, I just love that kind of stuff. Um, but to think that this could all happen by random chance, it's against scientific probability. It's impossible. It'd be a miracle for that to happen. That's what's being said. Because you just don't form languages without an intelligence. There has to be an intelligent designer there. NASA started something years ago, but then they gave up on it. It was picked up by private sector. It's called the SETI Project, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And they've got radio telescopes, and they've been sitting and listening in space and what are they listening for? Are they looking for spacecraft flying around? No, they're listening for a language. They're hoping to find language. Why? Because if we can find a language out in outer space someplace, you know what that tells us? There's intelligence out there. Well, the SETI project has been going on for a half a century or more. And the thing is, they haven't got anything yet. There is no language that has come through outer space. So, um, they just haven't found anything. Um, but if they could find a language, they would say immediately, that would be top news. We would say, oh my gosh, there's a language. There's letters, there's, there's vowels and stuff coming across or there's certain patterns. Oh my gosh, there's a language out there. There's life out there. But they haven't found anything. You know why? They're looking in the wrong place. There is a digital language that's found in the universe. It's in our cells. It's DNA. They're looking for, you get this now, the irony of this. Scientists, many scientists are looking out in outer space for a digital language. They're looking in the universe for a digital language to tell us if we're not alone. Yet in each one of our cells, and even in the cells of, of plants, fungi, protozoa, bacteria, you find digital language. If you find a digital language, you find intelligence. There is an intelligence out there that did this. Um, 
Francis Collin wrote a book on this, The Language of God, where as he was heading up the Human Genome Project, he was an atheist going into this, and as he worked through this project of mapping all the genes, he realized, my gosh, this is a digital language. If there's a digital language, there has to be a creator. Voila, he got it. Now, let me just show you one more thing here as we're wrapping up. I've been standing in, not in front of my normal background. I've got a poster up here. What is this? This is called the Metabolics Pathway Chart. It is the chemical reactions, um, just some, this is not a complete chart, but these are some of the chemical reactions that occur inside of a cell, like every hundredth of a second or so to keep you alive. This is what's going on inside your cells, different chemical um, equations. And for instance, if you ate like sugar, uh, sugar, table sugar, we've mentioned it before, is sucrose. Well, sucrose is part on this map because we need sucrose, we need sugar to live. And so if you eat sugar, here's the sugar molecule. But then there's a little blue thing right next to it that's listed here, and that's sucrase. And then um, it changes, it shows the shape of the sucrose molecule, and then changes it into a different molecule. It changes the shape of the molecule. Then another enzyme works on it, and it changes its shape. And then another enzyme works on it. It's like dominoes being set up, and each domino, once it's made, is there, and then the next one is set up, and then when that one's made, it can make the next one. You see, you can't make them until you get the product here, the one before. When it gets there, enzymes change it into something different, and now it can make the next one. And once that one's made, the enzymes can make the next one and they keep building it up. Look at how many enzymes are on here. There's over uh, a thousand enzymes that are listed on this chart. And enzymes, as we said before, don't happen by random chance. The odds of this, the odds of making one small enzyme, one to 10 to the 125th, which is way beyond possibility, but that's what you have. This chart is just showing inside of a cell what's taking place, and it's all run by enzymes. Enzymes are the little workhorses of God, of this designer to get the cell to function and to do its job. And you can see it goes, it's, it's a flow chart. You got arrows flying everywhere, and these little blue molecules all around these little enzymes that basically are running it. And it's making energy, and it's making carbon dioxide, and it's, it's keeping us alive. And you could take almost any any food product you come with and break it down, there's enzymes that will break down the food into the amino acids, and then it shows you how the amino acids are structured to make new proteins and new enzymes. This thing is just amazing, and, and how it's put together. I look at this chart, and this is one of the things that convinced me when I was working in research, because I was doing work in this chart. And as I was working on this, I was like, there's no way this could happen by random chance. This shouts the existence of a creator. There's an intelligent designer behind this. That's what we have here. The metabolic pathway chart is just shouting the existence of a creator designer with all of the, the enzymes that are used here. Logic shouts the existence of a creator. When I worked in research, that's the conclusion this all drew me to. Forget about trying to figure out how this could form by random chance. Forget how enzymes and stuff could form by random chance. Studying this thing blew my mind and trying to figure out how in the world could you get these? Because you understand if you take out one enzyme, like right in here, you shut down the whole thing. It's like taking a whole lot of dominoes, pull one domino out, you can stop the whole process very easily. You've got to have everything set up in the correct order. When you put dominoes down, there's somebody with a brain putting those things together. This is the same type of thing. This is showing a tremendous amount of intelligence.
There's got to be somebody out there. And the Bible tells us who it is. Another famous scientist, Dr. Werner von Braun, the designer of the Saturn V rocket that took the Apollo astronauts to the moon. You've all heard the expression, well, you have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. Well, when they say that, they're talking about Werner von Braun. And Werner von Braun, he's now dead, but um, he was a guy who studied his Bible, and he believed his Bible. And in September of 1972, he wrote, he was getting a little upset with California's State Board of Education and uh, what they were, how they were sort of putting down a lot having to do with uh, um, the possibility of God. And so he actually took the time and wrote a letter. And part of that letter, he says this, for me, the idea of a creation is not conceivable without invoking the necessity of design. One cannot be exposed to the law and order of the universe without concluding that there must be design and purpose behind it all. That's what you find also in the Word of God. This is not random chance. This is design. You have one of the most brilliant minds, most brilliant designers who's ever lived, and he concludes this, and he recognizes. Don't let people tell you that all scientists are, um, don't believe in the Bible. <laughs> no, there's a lot who acknowledge there is a creator God. I, I love this passage here. As I conclude with this, one of my favorite passages again in the Bible, it's Romans chapter one, verses 19 and 20. This one's important for us all because this is God speaking through the apostle Paul and he tells us this, having to do with everything he's created and about his presence. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. What's he saying? God is showing us his presence by everything he's made. This chart shows his presence. Peroxide with potatoes shows his presence. Enzymes. Look at a leaf under a microscope. Look, look at human tissue under a microscope. You see design. Look at the human body itself. You see design. You go to an art museum, you see paintings. You see that that was not done by random chance. There was an artist using his brain and his fingers to do it. This is what this is talking about. And we are without excuse to stand before God and say, well, I never knew you. I never knew you existed. You lived in my art gallery. How did you miss me? Dr. Robert Collins, a very famous physicist, wrote this concerning that passage I just read. In Romans 1.20, tells us that God's eternal power and divine nature can be seen and understood through the things that are made. And that this is the, the reason humanity is without excuse. He goes on and says this, I see physics as uncovering the evidence of God's fingerprint at a deeper, more subtle level than the ancients could have ever dreamed of. He has used physics to enable me to see the evidence of his presence and the creative ability. The heavens really do declare the glory of God, even more so for someone trained 
with physics and with eyes to see. I concur with this, though I'm not a physicist, as a biologist. I look at this and I thank God that he gave me the eyes of a biologist, that I can see the handiwork of a creator in the enzymes, in nature, in DNA, and even in the most bizarre flowchart of chemical pathways found in cells, I see God's fingerprint. I hope you do too. Thanks for joining us. Come back again for another lesson on science and the Bible. Take care and God bless. I hope you enjoyed that episode. A big thank you is due to our donors for making this ministry possible. Once again, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org give and help us keep this broadcast free. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org give. You can also support us by sharing, subscribing, and leaving a review on this podcast. You can also send us a message. Let us know what you thought about this episode. If you'd like to hear Michael live, you can check out our bookings calendar at our website as well. This is Charlotte signing off. I'll see you on the next episode.